Welcome to Sure Foundation Lutheran Church's podcast channel. If you'd like more content like this, visit us on our website at www.surechurch.com. The following sermon was preached on November 1st on the basis of Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. The sermon this morning is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. We're going to start by reading the, the text for this morning. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion servant whom his master valued highly. He was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to, to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is God's word. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So are you ready for the elections to be over yet? <laughs> uh, I don't blame you if you are. It, between the, the sheer amount of political ads, between the social media arguing, between the volume of political signs and billboards and news stories, the election year can become, in a word, wearisome. <laughs> I promise I'm not going to add to your weariness this morning, at least that's not my intent, but it's been my observation for this election cycle and the election cycles of the past that I'm old enough to remember, uh, I've made an observation that I think is a fairly notable one. Each time we have this election, you have several candidates, right? And the candidates take their stand on certain issues, and they try to make clear to the voters where they stand on these issues. They make promises to the people about what they will do if they are elected to the position that they are elected to. Generally, these promises are positive things, right? This person is going to do this, and that person is going to do that. And something that politicians are very good at is bringing you in. Bringing you in to these promises that they are making. In their speeches, in the, the news that they, they put out, in, in the things that their team puts out, they're good at bringing you into their promises. And here's what I mean by that. They, they can paint the picture for you. They can paint the picture of how electing them is going to make your life better. 
and how electing them is going to make this country better, and maybe even as far as saying electing them will make this world better. And each time we have an election like this, people get really drawn in. They kind of like the picture that a candidate is proposing. They kind of like what the world would look like if this person was at the helm in Congress or in uh, the House of Representatives. And they come to trust in what this candidate stands for and what this candidate is saying. And so they, they vote for them. These elections have been happening for a long time in the United States. And, and back further, there, there's been, always been leaders of countries, right? Yet presidential terms, congressional terms, representative terms, they, they come and pass, and, and they have for ages. And, and we still have problems, don't we? <laughs> we still see injustice. There's still crime. There's still poverty. People are still struggling from, from cancer and ALS and Alzheimer's. People still get diagnosed with depression and anxiety disorders. People are still lonely. They're still scared. They're still angry. People still feel guilt and shame. They, they still struggle with addictions. There's still sin. And this is not a critique on our government or any other government for that matter, because government was never meant to take care of these things. Government has no answer for sin. Government cannot remove shame and guilt of sin, nor can it stop people from sinning altogether. This is not something that government is capable of doing. Yet my observation uh, over this election cycle and the ones in the past is that we so easily get tricked, don't we? We get so easily tricked into thinking that they can do this. That they can fulfill all of their promises in the most grand way possible. That this country, my life, the whole world is going to become better and move towards even perfection if we elect this person to be in a position of leadership. We get tricked into looking to candidates and to the government to do what the government cannot and will not do. And it doesn't matter how much faith you have. You can have a lot of faith in your candidates, in your party, in, in who you think should be in charge. You could have all the faith in the world as tall as a mountain, yet if that person cannot fulfill and will not fulfill his promises, that faith is worthless. It, it means nothing. And so that's going to be the big thing that we're going to talk about this morning. That faith is only as strong as to whom the faith is connected. And that kind of brings us into our story for this morning with the centurion. You know what a centurion is? You've maybe heard this story before, so you can, you can probably remember what it is. Maybe you can kind of guess from the word. Let's look at the word. What English word do you see in there? Do you see century? Century is, is how long? How many years? Hundred years, right? So this guy's a hundred years old. <laughs> no, he's not a hundred years old. Uh, but he is in charge of a hundred soldiers. Uh, he, he was the commander of a hundred soldiers. So he was in a position of responsibility. He was in a position of power in the Roman uh, military, which was the strongest military 
at that time and, and maybe even up until that time. And, and so he was a powerful guy. Uh, it's also obvious that this centurion was not a Jewish person. He, he was a Gentile. It, it would have been kind of hard for a, a Jewish person to rise to that level of prominence in the Roman military, just basically on how the Romans saw Jewish people at that time. So he, he's a non-Jew, he's a Gentile. And another thing that we can notice about him is, and it says in the text, is that he knew a little something about Jesus. Now, as to what level he knew about Jesus, we get a little bit more clues as we go on in the story, but we don't get the full picture. But he at least knew enough about Jesus and his teachings to know that this guy can heal people and has healed people and has the power to do that. And so he find, when he finds out that his servant is sick, the servant who he so deeply loves, he, he sends the Jewish elders to Jesus to, to ask him to come and, and heal his servant. Now, now I, I want to pause there because I think there's two really small points, really obvious points, but they're important, I think. Because this Roman centurion is in a position of power, maybe it's important to note that he's asking for help. Whenever you ask for help, what, what are you admitting? You're admitting that, that you can't do it yourself. <laughs> I need to call and ask somebody to help me with something on my car because I don't know what I'm doing. I need that person to help me do it. This Roman centurion is admitting that, that he cannot heal this servant. And perhaps that seems like a pretty obvious thing. But the human ego and maybe even the male ego is a little bit illogical at times and maybe wives can testify to that. Um, that sometimes we, we don't like admitting that we can't do something, even if we know that we can't. But this Roman centurion who, who has power, who's in a position of authority, admits that he needs help. And then he turns to Jesus for that help. And that's the second obvious point that I think is important. Uh, if you had a sore back, you wouldn't make an appointment with the plumber, would you? No, you wouldn't expect the plumber to be able to fix your sore back. You would make an appointment with the chiropractor, right? So they'd fix your back. The Roman centurion is not going to reach out to somebody who he doesn't believe can do what he's asking him to do. So he obviously believes that Jesus has the power to heal his servant. And so these Jewish elders, who obviously liked this Roman centurion, they went and they approached Jesus and you know what they said to him? You, you, you caught it there. He said, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. In this section of Scripture, you just see two contrasting characters here. You got the Jewish elders and you got the Roman centurion. Isn't this phrase indicative of what the, the Jewish people thought and how they, they thought things worked? This man is a good guy. He has done good things. He takes care of the Jewish people. He built our synagogue. He treats us well. He deserves this. He has earned this right to have you do this. Here's a big point. Sinners so often and so easily make faith all about ourselves and our work. Last week in the online sermon, and at the beginning of the service here, I mentioned that we're celebrating the Reformation and that we're going to stretch it out, stretch it out over four Sundays here. 
and talk about a man named Martin Luther and the Lutheran Reformation. Now, some of you might know a lot about the Lutheran Reformation. Some of you might not know so much. It's all good. You'll probably get a little snippet in each sermon about Martin Luther and about the Reformation because it was a very important and influential time for, the, for not just their namesake, the Lutherans, those who call themselves Lutherans today, but for the entire world too. Martin Luther was number three on the all-time list of most influential people in the world, ahead of people like George Washington uh, even. Martin Luther was a, a Catholic monk who, who spent a lot of his earlier years in a, a monastery. He was a very devout man, spent a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time in confession, a lot of time in the Word. But, but Luther had an issue. He had an issue with God and the concepts that came from what he had learned from the, the church. And it was over this one little word called righteousness. That's so not really a little word. It's kind of a long word, right? Righteousness, perfection, doing things right. He had a problem with that. Because when he read through Scripture and every time he, he saw the word righteousness, he, he knew his heart pretty well. He knew his mind pretty well, his thoughts. He, he knew his words. He knew his actions pretty well. And he knew that he was not righteous. And if, if God was a fair judge at all, that God deserved to, to punish him, that, that he didn't deserve to go to heaven, he deserved hell for, for what he had done because he was not righteous. Well, what made Martin Luther so influential in the course of history and for us today, that, that the only reason that we're still talking about him today is because of what he rediscovered from Scripture. And I say rediscovered because it was always there, but he, he rediscovered it. And he read through Romans and other parts of the New Testament and realized that righteousness is not just something you do. But righteousness is something that is given to you through Jesus. That because of Jesus' perfect life, because of Jesus' innocent death on the cross, because of Jesus' resurrection, He has won that righteousness on our behalf as our substitute. And He has given it to us as a free gift by grace alone. And that's what we talked about last week. And this really excited Luther. You could imagine a guy that, that was so, now, so uh, acutely aware of his own sinfulness and, and felt awful about it. Didn't feel like for a long time that he measured up. Now, he takes a breath. He has comfort. Because he realizes that it's not about his righteousness, but Christ's. And he was set on fire to tell everybody about this. Because this gave him such comfort, he wanted everybody else to, to feel this comfort too. And so he kept reading in Scripture, and he starts seeing discrepancies between what Scripture was saying and what the church was teaching, and it was his heart's desire and his life's work to try to reform the, the church, to try to make clear what, what he has discovered in Scripture to the people around them, and that there were differences between what Scripture says and what the church was teaching. And one of those differences was, indeed, faith. Faith in the Catholic Church at the time, and, and quite honestly still to today, was defined as faith formed by love. And at first we were kind of like, okay, love's a good thing, right? Um, but faith is faith formed by love. Not, not Christ's love, but faith is faith formed by our love. By my love for my neighbor, by my love for my church, by my love by my works, how I show my, my love. It seems like a subtle thing, but you can see how subtly this has made faith and works a combined unit here. I think I maybe put a slide up. 
That's the one on, the, on the, your left here, where faith and works are, are slowly melded together, and it removes some comfort. If your head's kind of spinning right now, that's okay. This is maybe a little theological talk for you, but we'll, we'll apply this as we go on here a little bit. <clears throat> so, so they mix these two concepts, but before we get too far and before we, we rag on, on Catholics too much, <laughs> let's admit something right off the bat here. Let's admit that we, you and I, naturally do this too. That we, as sinners, so subtly and so easily make faith all about ourselves and our works. Has anybody ever asked you before if you had faith? Maybe they didn't say those exact words. Maybe they asked you if you were a Christian. Maybe they asked you if you believed. Uh, but maybe it came up in some conversation before, and it's my prayer that you said yes. I doubt anybody has had a follow-up question like this to that, but let's, let's imagine for a second. that this person asked you if you had faith, you said yes. Then they asked you, how do you know? How do you know that you have faith? Maybe it's not a question you, you've pondered, before, maybe it's something that would catch you a little bit off balance because you never maybe really considered that before. And so you take a second and you think, and then you respond, well, you know, I, I go to church, I, I live a Christian life, I, I love people, and you could go on, there's a, there's a whole list of things that you could, you could say, but you feel like you've sufficiently answered the question, Right? And it's true, Scripture says, by their fruit you will know them. When Jesus is talking about the, the Pharisees, he's saying, by their fruit you will know them. By what they do and how they act, you will know if they are believers or not. And it is true that in James it says, faith without works is dead. But here's the distinction. It's a little nuance that's really important. Faith, this one on the right, faith or works flow from faith. That a healthy tree produces fruit because it's healthy. That faith, or that works flow from faith, that works are not required for faith, for salvation. It's, it's a tiny little distinction, and if you're, you're still thinking, so what? Think about this and how subtly we do this. Think about the times in your life where you felt like your faith has been really strong. Can you think of a time like that? Maybe it's right now. Um, Generally, the times in our life when we feel like our faith are, is really strong is when we're doing a lot of good things, right? When, when we're helping the poor, when we're giving to church, when we're volunteering at church, when we're, we've done something nice for our neighbor, our, our faith feels like it's strong. When I've managed to avoid sin and I haven't fallen back into that, that addiction that I had, I, I feel like my faith is strong. Now think about the times in your life when you feel like your faith has been really weak maybe the times when you, you did fall back into that addiction, when you, you couldn't really help yourself from, from sinning, when you, when you haven't been able to think of a time when you've done something good in the last little while, when you remember past sins that still haunt you and the present sins that consume you, and you kind of wonder, man, I have weak faith, or wonder if you have faith altogether. You see what you, we've done? We've started to base our faith on our works. That I have strong faith when I do good things and I have weak faith when I do bad things. 
And if my faith is based on my works, then I have no comfort. Because if my faith is based on my works, I, I will be acutely aware of my own heart, my own thoughts, my own words and actions, and I will know that I am not righteous. If my faith is based on my works, there, there's no uncertainty, or there is uncertainty there. Sinners so easily and so subtly make faith all about ourselves and our own works. The centurion didn't seem to do that. It, these Jewish elders had said enough to convince Jesus to come and be with this centurion, to come and see the servant and to heal him. But before Jesus even gets there, did you catch what, what they said? He said, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. This is a man of power, of prestige, of position. If anyone deserved, you heard the Jewish elders say that. If anybody deserved to have this done for them, it was this man. Yet the humility that this centurion man showed was, was enormous. Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. He knew who Jesus was, and he knew that he was not worthy of this. Then he says, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. He wasn't going to ask Jesus to do something that he didn't know that Jesus could do, and he truly believed that Jesus could heal his servant. He believed that Jesus had the power to do this, not, not just Jesus alone, but his words. It's important. He says, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. And at this, Jesus is amazed. He's amazed. I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. If Jesus is amazed about somebody's faith, that faith has got to be pretty amazing. But the question is, what made his faith so amazing? Well, I think we've sufficiently ruled out that it was the fact that he was a good guy, that was successful, that was powerful. I think we've ruled that out, right? And it wasn't that he had this unique ability to believe harder than, than some of us do. But what made his faith strong is to whom his faith was connected. What makes your faith strong is to whom your faith is connected. Hypothetically, if Jesus did not have the power to heal that man, that man could have had faith as tall as mountains, but it would have been worthless if Jesus did not have the power to heal that man. But he did. He did have the power to heal that man. And therefore, his faith was powerful. Faith is only as strong as to whom your faith is connected to. And so, brothers and sisters, take heart and take comfort because your faith is strong. It's strong not because you believe really hard, but because it's connected to Jesus. It's rooted in Jesus and his word. Jesus, who came in a miraculously powerful yet humble way, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, who, who experienced temptations that we have not experienced even before. He was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin not even once. He was our perfect substitute. Jesus, who being true God and true man, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Took our sins to the cross to do that. Jesus, who three days later rose from the dead. Yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say Jesus is a pretty powerful 
God. But even more than that, the work that Jesus did was powerful for you. His perfect life, His innocent death, His resurrection had power for you so that you are saved by faith alone apart from works because Jesus already did the work for you. That's a big deal. Romans 1, 5, 1, we read this before. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have been justified through faith. You have been declared before God not guilty of your sins through faith. And that has real effects for your life now and in eternity. It gives you peace. And peace looks like this. That no matter what craziness goes down in the next week or month or year or years or centuries, that you still have peace. That no matter how the election turns out, you have peace of knowing that your sins have been taken away. That Jesus fulfilled His promise that no other person could. That Jesus took away sins that no other person could. That Jesus has promised to give you heaven and bring you there to be with Him one day, which is a future than, better than any politician can promise you. And that Jesus is still King and rules over everything. That's peace. <laughs> peace through faith in Jesus. Peace looks like this. When you're haunted by your past, when, when you're hounded by your, your sins, when you, you despair and you wonder whether you even have faith at all. Peace is this. It is knowing that your faith is not based in your works. Your faith is not based in what you do. But your faith is based in Jesus and what He has done. That when you feel like your, your faith is weak, that you look to Jesus' perfect life. That you look to Jesus on the cross for you. That when you feel like you wonder if you have faith at all, you look to the empty tomb and you see your Savior, Jesus, because you know that your faith is not based in your works, but it's based in Jesus. And your faith is powerful because of that. We read through that long section of Hebrews that talked about all of, of the great people of the, the Bible, people that had great faith, the hall of faith, right? And, and we read sections like this today, and we think, man, I wish I had faith like the centurion. I wish I had faith like Noah or Abraham or Moses. These guys had great faith. But you do. You do because faith is only as strong as to whom the faith is connected to. Their faith was in the promise of the Savior. Your faith is in your Savior, Jesus. Your faith is strong. And through that faith alone, you are saved. Amen.